I was listening to an expert on horse racing. Why, you ask? I'm not going to tell you why. He was just on the sport talk show I was listening to, the local one with the friend who is on it. And this guy was explaining why Justify would not win the Kentucky Derby. It was an unjustified prediction. Okay, no horse people here. Okay. Thanks, that was fun. But he said this, which I thought was particularly helpful to think about our words today, is that he quoted the great Mike Tyson, that heavyweight champion of the world, who was very dominant for a time and was known to bite an ear. Mike Tyson said, everyone who gets in the ring has a plan. That is, until he gets punched in the mouth. That's why Justify wasn't going to win. He wasn't very experienced. He hadn't been in big races. He was too young. This man was thinking, once he got in the pressure of the moment, and he got punched in the mouth with all those horses and all that crowd and all that pressure, he would wilt. I think it's a good metaphor to think about what happens to people, what happens to you, what happens to the people you're around, is that all of us have, have plants. We have aspirations. We have things we want to get done today, places we want to go. We have things that we'll have to do this week and this month and this quarter and this year, and so are the people around us filled with plants. And all of those plans, when they start to be operational, are often met with a punching in the mouth which throws everything off kilter. In a way, that's how we might understand, as people who are thinking about what it means to be called with the task of colonizing earth with the life of heaven, to whom are we called? And perhaps we could think of it as having a special calling to give a darn about people who have been punched in the mouth and had their plans disrupted. And being willing to let our own plans get disrupted in the process. In this passage today, you have a teacher an expert in the law coming to Jesus saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is an amazing question, the kind of question that people in history have sometimes asked before Facebook arrived. Now people don't ask that question because no one dies and you don't have to worry about what happens to you after you die since we won't. Man, my jokes are falling flat today. And that just hurts my feelings. (laughs) If it were an enemy, I could stand it, but it's... (laughs) But this man's asking a question that's liable not to be all that sincere. We're told that he wants to test Jesus. Luke seems to know somehow that he's up to something. There's, There's a tendency to want to put up smoke screens when we're talking about serious things. You'll notice this. That's why you shouldn't overly take the, the queries and doubts of people around you 
about Christianity that seriously. You should take it with utmost seriously face-to-face, but in your heart not so much because there's so much posing and posturing of things we don't want to be true. There are questions we ask because we want not to find out the answer. We want to keep the answer away. This man's asking questions to keep Jesus away. And Jesus does that annoying thing that he does where someone asks him a question and then he doesn't answer it. Woody Allen apparently at one point said, it's like the rabbi who was asked, why do you always answer our questions with a question? And the rabbi thought about it for a moment, and he thought, well, why shouldn't I answer your question with a question? And Jesus does the same thing. What must I do, teacher, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in your law? Jesus doesn't take the bait. He's not going to be trapped. How do you read it? And the man says, love God with all you got. And your neighbor, just as much as you love yourself. And Jesus said, that sounds good to me. Do this, and you'll live. And this indicting sentence that invites us to look at ourselves, but he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, hold up. Can we qualify our terms here for a moment? Can we... Figure out how to limit the parameters of what we don't have to do and who we can exclude and who we can include and what am I actually responsible for and how much am I not responsible for. He wanted to justify himself, we're told. And so he asked another question that was trying to throw his own conscience, his own heart off the scent of what Jesus might be up to. And before we get to Jesus' reply, because you just heard it read, I'll just note that at the end of his reply, Jesus tells this man who wants to justify himself, who knows that the command to love, a comprehensive love for neighbor and for God, he knows it. Jesus says, in identifying An act of mercy. Neighborly mercy. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, it's very important to note that Jesus does things like this. Because the thing that Jesus will not permit us to do in our attempts at self-justification and in our penchant for letting the fact that we feel loving convince us that we are. He will not let our love remain ethereal or virtual. And neighbors are an amazing opportunity for your love to not be merely virtual. See, in our time, there's a lot of hand-wringing over the newly named but oft-practiced throughout the centuries phenomenon of virtue signaling. 
You know what virtue signaling is? Perhaps you've heard this before. It's a thing that people have always done, but now they can do it loudly with great repetition because of the interwebs. To virtue signal is to justify yourself by letting the world know that you hold the right positions by what you affirm or by what you denounce. You can do this on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or on your bumper sticker or on your T-shirt. You can let the world know that you're on the right side. You're in the know. You've made the right calculations. You have the secret knowledge. You are morally upright. And you know how we can tell? Because you've told us. Because of what you affirm. And because of what you denounce. And it lets you have this safety. See, I'm with the people who are thinking the right things. We are the people who hate Trump. We are the people who love Trump. We can have the safety of feeling virtuous in what we affirm about race or about guns. About politics or about religion. And these affirmations are not necessarily wrong. Not at all. It's just that they can be dangerous for our own souls. And so it's important that Jesus says, go and do likewise. He tells his disciples this on Monday, Thursday. Now that I have done these things for you, here's this new command. Love each other as I have loved you. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There's a danger in our time, I think, that is different than the danger that's presented to these two religious officials who are walking down the road and they see a man who's had the tar beat out of him by robbers and thieves. He's there in a ditch, bleeding to death, hanging on for life, and these religious men walk past, and the first one apparently has just given, maybe, says Helmut Tilica, a, a lecture on neighbor, brotherly love. And he sees him and he crosses to the other side of the road and ignores the man. He sees him and he passes to the other side. So obviously, his conscience has been troubled in some way. Why did he pass to the other side? Because he didn't want to see what he saw. You know that? Something was roused in him and he needed to bed it back down so that it did not trample him. So he had to think of reasons in his head, well, this guy can't be my neighbor. I have other things to do. If I do these things, I won't be able to do this thing. If I do this thing, I won't be able to do my things. So he went to the other side. The Levite did the same thing. He saw him, and he passed to the other side. That's ridiculous ridiculous, heartless men. You know, I realize that's exactly what I do. When I'm preparing to help somebody, when I feel like I've got the time or the inclination, whatever the help is, then you know what I do? I look at the person, and then I start calculating, okay, how can I do And then I go and I'll do the help. 
But if I see somebody and I don't have time for that, or I've just helped somebody, and then there's an endless stream of help needed, and then I see somebody else, somebody else needing money or food, or then I do my level best not to look at them. I look when I want to help. I go to the other side when I do not want to help. I have to manage my conscience somehow. And if I make contact of I with them, then I'm indicted. They have a claim on me, so I feel. Jesus says, go and do likewise. There's a danger for us that wasn't for those guys that's even more pronounced for us. See, they, they were walking down a road and saw a man bleeding in a ditch, and they walked to the other side. We have the benefit of knowing more men in ditches, more women on the side of the road, more people who've been smashed in the mouth than any people in the history of the world at any given time. You know people who have been punched in the mouth in West Africa. You know people who've been punched in the mouth in China. We don't know them, but you know about them. You know people who have been punched in the mouth with sexual abuse and racial injustice in St. Louis. You know people who have been punched in the mouth with joblessness, with divorce, with childlessness, with racially motivated injustice. It's everywhere. And you hear about it all the time. And so you got to manage yourself somehow. How do you do it? What do you do? What do you do knowing all this stuff? My first answer is I don't know. You're welcome. I don't know. It's a hard problem. Because Jesus says, go and do likewise and show mercy. But I know the one thing I don't think you should do. I don't think you should think that what you need to do about problems in the world is just make virtual declarations about them. And think when you did that, that you have gone and done likewise. Because that helps justify yourself. It makes you feel morally superior. But you haven't actually done anything. And there's a danger for all of us when we start to think about these things because... When we don't, we move from the virtual world of people in all kinds of places we've never gone, that people we've never met, and then we sort of telescope in, or microscope in, shouldn't we say, to the people in our very lives, the people that we do run into, the neighbors on our very path. Then you have the whole other question of, do I actually enter into this? Or do I walk to the other side? Because it's scary. Right now, I bet you could think of somebody this week in your life, and I'm not just talking about uh, some homeless guy, which might be some homeless guy. But it might be somebody who was sick, and you thought you should do something, but you didn't know what to do, so you didn't do anything. Because you didn't want to seem silly. And there's all these calculations we have to make, right? When there's somebody in trouble, there's somebody in need, there's somebody in distress, and we need to speak up or we need to act and we realize, if I, if I help this person who's bleeding, I'm get, I might get blood on me. If I help this sick person, I might get sick. If I help this person in this dangerous place, I might expose myself to danger. 
if I help somebody who's in a shameful position, that some of that shame might transfer to me. And so it's really easy to not do anything, to get paralyzed, to be, to be cocooned in this thought of, oh man, that is terrible, and then to hand-wring about how terrible everything is. And to satisfy and satiate, maybe, for a minute, your soul. And Screwtape Letters, the demon, Uncle Screwtape, says, I don't know how we can avert this catastrophe. Your patient has converted to the enemy, to God. He's converted to God. But we may be able to avert the crisis. Here's how. Whatever you let him feel, don't let him act on any of it. Never let him act on any of it. Let him have every pious emotion in the world that, he, that you can muster. Just don't let him get any of those emotions into his will and then take a risk and act. Because if he does that, we're dead. If he sticks in his emotions or just in his thoughts, we're safe. You know, in fact, maybe have him write a book about it. If he can write a book about it, we're totally safe. Because he'll think he's written a book about it. And he'll think he's very loving. As Lewis said in another place, but really he's just unbothered. He just feels loving. The danger to the demons is when your compassion meets up with courage and it moves you to merciful neighborliness. Easy for me to say. When your courage and compassion meet up with each other and it moves you to merciful neighborliness, which is what Jesus is calling this man to. He changes the question from who is my neighbor to who was the neighbor. He's asking the man, how may you be neighborly? And we're filled with false alarms. Caused action. Criticisms. Denouncements. And we think because we nod vigorously that we're acting justly. Because we nod with pity and we've seen the video and we've seen the YouTube clip and we've forwarded the thing around and we've shaken our head and we've welled up with tears that now we have gone and done likewise and we've embodied the Savior in the world. When I was at Furman, I learned something. I learned they had a bad policy about fire alarms. Because any old under-21 guy who had decided to enhance his boneheadedness with alcohol, to like double it, to exponentially ignite his lunacy with drinking, could come in to the dorms, hold the entire dorm hostage by pulling the fire alarm, preferably at 2 in the morning. When this happened, the fire alarm could not be turned off until the fire trucks arrived and the entire building was evacuated. It was awesome, especially the sixth time in about two weeks. It happened all the time. So that you're thinking, are you kidding me? Because you know there's no fire, there's just an alarm and it's the middle of the night and you're asleep and some drunk guy is living it up. In his last semester at school, which is really his first semester and his last because of the drinking. 
But when we hear enough false alarms, when we hear enough calls to alarm and nothing happens, then we just stop acting. Stop listening even. We shut down our hearts. That's dangerous. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Don't let yourself be completely moved by emotion that doesn't result in action. And then think of this. This is how I manage this in my own life, and I'll share it with you. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. If you start to think that this call to go and do likewise, to go ensure this merciful neighborliness is the way to inherit eternal life, because this conversation started that way, then what's going to happen is you are going to be constantly wrestling with this. Anybody who takes this seriously is going to be wrestling with this. When have I done enough? When have I helped enough people? When have I gotten enough blood on me, sick on me, trouble on me, headache on me, hardship on me? When have I spent enough? Because I can promise you this, people who take Christ's call to mercy seriously, when they start to care about people outside of them as much as they care about themselves, they start to be attentive to needs around them and say, ah, not what's going to happen to me if I help them, but what's going to happen to them if I don't help them? And then you decide to. And if you're doing that to justify yourself, if you're doing that because you think, I've got to do this, some bad stuff's going to happen to you. One, you're going to be a nervous, exhausted wreck all the time. Because nothing's ever going to be enough. You're not going to be helping people out of love. You're going to be throwing your help at them. You know how you can tell? You're going to be ticked off if they don't thank you. Because the more you help poor people, you know what you're going to find out? That poor people are like you people. They're not sufficiently grateful. Hurting people are never, like you, sufficiently grateful. They never realize what an astounding bit of compassion you've shown them. And it will hurt your feelings if you're doing it to build a resume somehow. You're using them to make yourself feel better or look better or something like that. Instead of being moved by compassion that says, I don't care how they respond. I want to enter into their sorrows and their suffering and their struggle with them. I want to hear I want to hear their cry, and I want to let it cause me tears that I move in close with them and get those tears on me. You'll get mad if they don't act grateful, if people you help don't act grateful, if you're just doing this to build up a resume. You'll also be exhausted because you'll start to realize when you open your eyes and blink them wide open that there's way more to do than you can. Ugh. The conscientious Christians I know are not lazy. And they're troubled in conscience because they want to help a lot of people. And so then the question becomes, how do I exercise neighborliness? And it's a comfort to me that the Apostle Paul says, you're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for you to do. You can't be neighbor to everyone. There may be lots of trouble that comes across your path, but that doesn't mean you can't be neighbor to no one. It's a difference. Don't hear the volume of need 
as a false alarm that makes you do nothing. Don't let your, the whispers of keep yourself safe. You might look like a fool. You might be ashamed. Don't let those whispers be louder than the need of the people outside you. Move towards them with the power of Christ. And ask him each day, like the musical singers and the, the returning exiles to Jerusalem and Nehemiah, the musicians were daily under the orders of the king. Their activity was regulated by the king. What if you start your days and move through your days and say, Lord, I can't meet all needs, but let my activity be regulated by the king. To whom would you like me to be a neighbor? To whom do you want me to have the courage to move even when I don't know what to do, but trust you to do through me? How may I neighborly help? And you have to realize that this is not the way, showing this mercy, to get the king to stay on your good side. Until we have faces... Oriel, the queen, has made her complaint against the gods for how they are. And she makes this complaint and realizes the dark ugliness within her. They don't even answer her. Their non-response is its own answer. And then she is taken to be questioned by the gods. Why, yes, child, her Greek tutor, the fox, tells her, The gods have been accused by you, and now it's their turn. They're going to accuse you. And Oriole says, I cannot hope for mercy. And her tutor says, well, infinite hopes and fears may both be yours. But be sure that whatever else you get, whatever else you get, you will not get justice. What, says Oriel, are the gods not just? Oh, no, child. What would become of us if they were? Whatever else you get, you will not get justice. What, are they not just? Oh, no, child. What would become of us if they are? Most commentators would recognize that to hear this parable aright... For a lawyer who wants to justify himself is to also recognize yourself not as the passers-by who go to the other side and not just a call to be that, that, that Samaritan that would have been a stench to the Jew for him to be the hero of the story, like a KKK man helping a, an African-American or vice versa, that would have been unconscionable. but to see yourself lying in the ditch. To see yourself punched in the mouth, bleeding, helpless, hoping somebody will come by and help you. And this outsider, this man who died outside the city gates, this man who says, I'll take your wounds. I'll pay for your wellness. I'll arrange for your restoration, all at great cost to myself. I'll get all your trouble all over me so that it may come off of you. 
Your Savior is a good Samaritan who will not treat you justly. And that's good news for anybody who's entertained these teachings of Jesus and tried to go and do likewise. You realize doing mercy is not the way to getting God's good graces. Because you can never do enough. And if you don't believe me, start trying. I don't know how to convince you. I don't know how to convince you of the hopelessness of spending yourself and realizing I haven't done enough. My heart's not been right in it. I haven't sacrificed enough. I haven't been generous enough. I haven't been courageous enough. I haven't been just enough until you've tried it. And here you can say, oh, but I'm so glad that grace is true. And I'm so glad that my good Samaritan has taken my wounds and will not treat me justly, but mercifully. And so treated. We go out again, endowed with his heart to be mercifully neighborly with courageous compassion. Let's pray.